So this morning, we, we're carrying on from where we were last week. If you weren't here last week, just raise your hand. No, um, we won't let you be exposed. Um, last week, we, we started on this beautiful topic called, It's All About Worship. And, and we, we said that in, in, as an introduction to the 10 plagues, which we're going to be talking about this morning, we needed to establish something about the reason why these things were instituted. That God wanted to reveal something about his power and his might to the people of Egypt, but also to his own people. And that's so that as they understand who he is, that they will be released to go and worship. And we at length spoke about the fact that God said to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me, or worship me, or sacrifice unto me. So it wasn't just getting out of Egypt, oh, praise the Lord, I'm out of this mess. I'm no longer a slave. No, it's so that, in order to. Freedom from, to freedom for. Freedom for worship. Freedom from slavery, so that I may go and worship. And I think, again, often we miss that point. We just want freedom from this stuff. But God says, I'm, I'm freeing you for some." One, not just for something. So it's freedom from to freedom for. And we established that and, and we realized that actually that each of these plagues, again, just God in his infinite wisdom had chosen these specific issues in Egypt, which were gods to the Egyptians to show to them that there's only one real God. And when you talk about God and gods, it's all about worship again. It all comes back to that. That pivotal issue that we need to worship him in spirit and in truth as Jesus taught us in the book of John. And so this morning we're going to look at each plague and, and see how they can possibly help us understand worship better. And it may be that you're going to sit here this morning and I actually want to challenge you. I'm going to hopefully manage to go through all ten. That in each of these plagues there may be something that God will speak to you about. God may use frogs this morning to speak to you. Do you know that? Huh? He may speak about blood into your heart. About things like livestock, cattle. Things like boils on people's bodies. Like, man, I got a word from the Lord this morning. What was it about? It was about a boil. No, it was about locusts. They're like, wow, that's deep, buddy. That's deep. No, no, there's something more. And so I want to I wanna challenge you this morning to, to stay awake with us. And even afterwards, to keep on being awake in the spirit and say, God, what is it that you're perhaps saying to me from these 10 plagues? Is that okay? You're going to manage 10? It's not too much? All right, let's go for it. The first one is in Exodus 7, and, and it's actually throughout you know, a couple of verses there, but we're not going to be able to read all of them. And the first plague is obviously water turned into blood. Okay, at this moment, something went wrong with our recording on Sunday. So, um, just want to repeat that. We're on to the first plague, which is water into blood, Exodus 7, verse 17 to 19. We'd been reading at the point um, on during the Sunday sermon. And um, the uh, thoughts uh, will carry on. So, our apology, but um, the, the rest of the sermon will follow after this little bit of interlude from me. Just to let you know that um, 
the verses that you ought to be reading is Exodus 7, verse 17 to 19, and I will then go to revert back to the original recording and carry on from here. Thank you, and again, apology. And he says, I can turn your God in one moment into something that produces no life, and in actual fact, it stinks. Everywhere that you have gone and said and boasted about the Nile, oh, there's only one Nile. That very thing I have removed from you. The only real life we ought to look for is life in Christ. And God was here trying to again readjust their worship and say, even to the to the Israelite folk, his own people saying, you cannot become involved in something that produces no life. Yes, it can nourish you. Yes, it can quench your thirst, and we know what water can do. But God was saying, if you put your hope in that, my son, my daughter, it will be something that is offensive to me. Because I'm a jealous God. I want your worship. I'm not going to share it with the Nile. And so God in one moment made that thing turn around. The unfortunate thing out of that, listen to this in verse 23. So Pharaoh's heart is still hardened and he's still not willing to listen to God. In verse 23 it says, Pharaoh turned. He's now facing this appalling situation. Water turned into blood. What he does, he goes into his house and he did not even take this to heart. <laughs> so probably as, as the Pharaoh, as the ruler, he was like, I don't care. Let's just find a way. They're going to dig deep or drill a hole. I don't know. They're going to find water for me. I don't care about the people. I'm paraphrasing, but it says here, he did not take it even to heart. Because what he was focused on is self-worship. Because Pharaoh had set himself up as a God. He says, oh, you tell me that God wants this and he wants these people to go and worship. No, 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 no. This is where worship should be. Towards me. So I go into my own house and I don't even take this to heart. That's the danger of self-worship. They actually say some statistics. Statistics that we have from statisticians, it says 84% of Americans believe that the highest goal of life is enjoying yourself. And I mean, you can smile, but I guess if we start asking around our world of today, because Americans are just amazing. They do all of these statistics and these surveys. We just don't, don't do it. But they help us to understand that something of that is probably similar around the world as well. It's evident too that 84% of the people say, Hey, my whole aim in life is just to enjoy myself. I'll go back into my house and not take to heart what happens to others. I don't care. I don't really care. It doesn't concern me. And so God's addressing stuff here. Why is this put into the Bible? Why is just that one sent, that one verse that says, and he did not even take this to heart? Why would God put that in there? Because I believe he's saying to us, there's a warning that if the things around you are being challenged. And you may not be directly affected by it. Don't just walk away from it. And say, I don't care, it's not happening to me. Praise the Lord, my zesta is on. <laughs> At least it's not happening to me. And we've got to watch ourselves that we don't get involved in this thing of what we call hedonism. You know what a hedonist is? A hedonist is just a pleasure lover. I just want to have fun. I just want to look out for myself. I don't care about anything else. All I want is just myself. And 
The word self, self, self comes through, isn't it? Very, very interesting. The second plague is, is this one called frogs. By the way, frogs are another thing that they worship. They're allowed to kill the frogs. They're different. They're allowed to touch it in the sense of killing it. But this thing became full of verses 26 and 28. And then it's in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh 13. I said, Look, there's people go that they make serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will play all your country with frogs. They knew about frogs. It wasn't a strange and difficult phenomenon. The night shall swarm with frogs. They shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into your houses, of your servants, and your people, and into your ovens and your needing bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and all your servants. That's beautiful. The reason that you worship, you can have another. And it's like, oh, that frogs. I really do. Oops. And I'm so many frogs. <laughs> I feel they'll be fine, but this is crazy. You wake up in the morning, you have frogs all over you. Trying to eat this frogs everywhere. And so, I'm going to say anything more important to you than me has potential to be turned into something that will possibly even become so annoying. But eventually, what happened was when God called them in and said, okay, that's enough to this frog issue. There were so many frogs that because I asked them to tell us and there was just a mess. You can imagine the frogs everywhere. They scooped them up. It says here in verse 14, isn't it? it says, um, and they gathered them. The frogs died in the house of verse 13. The frogs died in the house of the in the field. And they gathered them together in the land stank. Again, the land is stinking. They worshiped them now. They worshiped frogs. And the very thought things that they were worshiping became a stench unto them. The very things that they thought to be worshiped worthy became a stench unto them. And so again, what we worship can actually become garbage. A frog becomes filth. Because God saying, I want you to worship me and me alone. I worship you because that is eternal and cannot be easily discarded. Frogs can be back in one moment. Oh, wait, the first day God took life away. They from the mouth. And everything died. The second um, plague gives life. And more frogs come about. And they came out of the mouth. 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 But the very thing that produced life actually was a hindrance in their worship. And God was saying, the very thing that you're worshiping is the thing that I will take away from you. And so our worship can never be anything or anyone. But God was going to be removed in one moment. In one moment. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans. I'll just read this to you as a, this is a support in what we're trying to say here this morning. Romans chapter 1. Paul gives us this astonishing explanation of what true worship should be like. In verse 21, Paul writes to the church in Romans. He says, For although they knew God, they did not believe him as God. Or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. It's kind of like vain or useless, ineffective in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Exchange the glory of the immortal God. Listen to what they did. For images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creepy things. Uh, it sounds like a frog, eh? It's God saying, I don't want this. I want your worship. I'm not sharing your worship. And if I have to share it, I'll even be as committed to saying, I'll kill a frog. Because I did something. I'll make you to worship me. So, we can just on into the third plague. There's so much we can talk about in these things. Ultimately, we're talking this morning about this. It's all about worship. And God is saying, I'm actually revealing these things to you, these plagues, because in each one of them there's an alternative worship found. This is the Egyptian that set all these things up. The third plague is what we call gnats. G-N-A-T-S. Some translations will say lice. It says in 8, chapter 8, and verse 16, the Lord said to him, the Savior, and just started, stopped, because he inspired the dust of the earth. The dust of the earth, we find that everywhere, isn't it? Dust is everywhere. Sometimes you don't even see it, the disciples afterwards, like, where did all this dust come from? He says, strike the dust of the earth so that they may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. So the dust of the earth becomes gnats, that's pretty. It's quite a number of gnats, isn't it? Hmm? So strike the dust so that they can turn into these. And some of them actually refer to stinging flies or mosquitoes. <laughs> we had a few last night. Not too many, but I still want dust to be turned into mosquitoes or turned into stinging flies. Imagine that. And so it says in verse 17 that these things, that all the dust of the earth came gnats in all the land of Egypt. Before it says, they were gnats on man and beast. So they weren't just around, they came and settled on man and beast. So it's not like you can swap them away and then they were just all over them. You've got to try to picture this. Sometimes we just read these stories like, okay, I was just a couple of things. Like, you know, just, 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 just it just comes and settles. And we just, we just allow it. And God's saying, no, no, no. I want you to understand that sin has to be recognized and to be dealt with because I want you as a holy people. They creep in under the screen like these gnats. That's what sin does. Sin has a potential that when allowed would become something that subtly enters our lives and starts doing a, a destructive work from within. It's not just this apparent stuff. I'm walking around with this big thing. That's sin in my life. <laughs> Sometimes we can see it. because You do something and people can see it. But some, often, more often sin is this stuff inside. Like King Saul, when he was upset about David being this amazing man that God had chosen. Saul had sin in his life before. He didn't obey God. And, and as, as they had to kind of prepare for David becoming king, Saul was hugely, hugely um, in, insecure because of David, but that insecurity led to 
a desire to actually destroy David. He was resentful. He was, he was, he had evil thoughts in his heart. Outside it was like, okay, but when David came around, he wanted to kill him. Sin had crept into his skin. And it made him think things and want to do things that were ungodly. I want to ask you, is your current worship of God affected by stinging attitudes from within your heart? Because God says, I want to deal with that. Could be like dust just settling on your heart. You're just allowing it to be there. God says, no, I want to release you of that. But you need to say, God, I don't want this dust in my life. Dust it off. Like, God, sorry, I'm, I, I repent of this stuff. The fourth plague is a swarm of flies. We read that in chapter 8 and verse 20. And the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. As he goes out to, that's a place of worship for Pharaoh. You always went to the Nile in the mornings. As he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also on the ground on which they stand. Man, this stuff is just not all over. Now it's not creeping into their skin necessarily, but it's just everywhere. It's just flies. It's just disgusting. It's just they're taking over. You can't, you, you want to take a spoon of oats and it has a few flies in it. And you just become used to it because this is how you're going to eat. And you have some extra proteins in every day when you have your meal. That's how it is. You just open your mouth and there's a couple of flies that fly in. Just disgusting stuff. All right? <laughs> and the interesting thing here is that for the first time, as these plagues have been going around, there's a distinction made between God's people and the Egyptians. It says in, uh, in which verse is it? In verse 23, thus I will put a division between my people and your people. So God was saying, okay, up to now, blood, frogs, gnats, the Israelites were also influenced by that. Did you know that? Here for the first time, it indicates that God is saying, no, no, from now on, my people will not be affected by these plagues. I will, I will protect them from it. There will be a division, which kind of sounds so unfair, isn't it? Like, surely God, they didn't deserve it, but God in his infinite wisdom and his sovereignty said, this is how it will be. There will be, these three plagues will be upon everyone, first of all, and then the rest, I will save my people from now. From now on. And I guess that's it's challenging to us because all of us live in a world where there are plagues around us, isn't it? <laughs> you don't go to a place where you're like, man, if we only can go there, then there will be no effect of sin around. We could just run to Gweru, for instance. Let's use Gweru as a wonderful example. We say, okay, there's sin around. Let's go live in Gweru. And say so there won't be any issues there. If only. Then the Guerians wouldn't have moved here, for instance. But I mean, there isn't that reality. Hey, is it true? I mean, there's stuff in Gueru. It's a beautiful place. <laughs> you came to save us. The point is, is there's no place on earth where you can go and say, hide from sin. Hide from the plagues of life. You and I, today, as what the Israelites were exposed to those first three plagues, we are exposed to the effect of sin around us. One day, we will have no sin around us anymore. But until then, we're going to be 
facing the plagues of life. And God says, in the midst of that, I want you to still worship me. I want you to still give unto me who you suppose I am and give my and the worship unto me that yet you need to give to me. I want you to learn who I am and not become in, involved in all this stuff and the rubbish and only talk about the plagues. Have you heard? Did you know? Have you seen? I think we talk more about plagues than about God. And I think, again, it's an issue for us. We need to say, God, we have swarms of stuff around us, but we have you in the midst of this. Attitude of Habakkuk in Habakkuk 3, verse 17 to 19 is beautiful. And I've got to just read this to you. Those of you that have never read Habakkuk, this is your moment. It's a beautiful uh, prophetic book right at the end of the Old Testament. It's about the fourth, fifth last book of, of the Old Testament. And it says this very last words that Habakkuk gives. And when he rejoices in the Lord, he says, Though the freak tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, verse 17, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Pretty messy, hey? Pretty messy. He says in verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, makes me tread on the high places. So he's saying, all of this stuff is failing. It's just plagues all around me. Nothing is happening. There's no fruitfulness. But I will discover fruitfulness in my heart towards the Lord. And I will give unto the Lord what he deserves. That's the fourth plague. So I would encourage you. Don't ever get overwhelmed by the swarms of flies around you. They are there. Every now and again when you open your mouth, they go in. Just spit them out. But let your heart continue to worship the Lord. The fifth plague is when the livestock dies. And so we read about that in verses 1 to 5 where it says that the plague will come upon the livestock that are in the fields. And verse 3 says, on the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds and the flocks. And again, the Lord will make a distinction between these two. It's very clear that God is saying, this is what's going to happen. And by the way, they were worshiping their livestock. <laughs> They had a particular name for it, and you can go and study that, and I didn't really want to give you that, because that's not the focus for me. I don't want to focus on what the Egyptians were worshipping. I want to focus on what the Israelites should be worshipping. You and I are part of that. And so here we find the very interesting thing, that for the first time, a time issue comes in place, a time factor. And verse 5, it says, of chapter 9, it says, And the Lord set a time for this. So the day before, God's saying, and warning, them and saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to, I'm going to let a plague come upon your livestock. And the Lord said at time saying, tomorrow, the Lord will do this thing in the land. And then verse six, it says, and the next day, the Lord did this thing. And so it's very clear here that God is saying, obedience and worship to me is not an open-ended thing that you can decide one day. He says, tomorrow, this is what I will do. In actual fact, he gives them a little bit of grace possibly and saying, listen, you can change your heart until then. Today, if you hear my voice, the Bible says, obey me. Choose. Tomorrow, this thing is coming. Until then, choose. Which often leads to us saying, I'll go think about that. And what we do is we turn obedience 
into delayed obedience. And delayed obedience is disobedience. So God's saying to them, tomorrow, I'm going to set a time for this thing. I want you to obey. And we read it throughout the Bible that when God speaks, He doesn't give it as a choice. So our worship to Him is not, let me think about that God. Let me just go and, now God says delayed obedience is disobedience. Today when you hear my voice, we read about the psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 60. It's up on the board. It says, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. So when I hear what you're saying to me, I do it immediately. My worship to you is of such that I don't go and, let me just, let me just think about this. This is, this is huge, Jesus. This is huge. I've got to forgive so-and-so. This is big. I'll, I'll go think about it. Which really means what you're saying is, is cool. It's important. But you know what? I've got to just handle it within my frame of reference, my character and what I like and what I don't like. I'll consider the importance of that first. Any area where there's a delay in doing what God is saying to us is disobedience. So, whew, just got to put it out this morning to myself and to us. And say, is there any area in your life currently where you'd like putting it off? You know what God has been saying to you? It's been there. It's been on your shoulders like you've been tapped. I love the way Holy Spirit often does that. He just gently taps us on the shoulder by way of speaking and say, come on, do it. We're like, yeah, yeah. I want to encourage you folk this morning. Don't let your obedience become a delayed one. It's like no child has a liberty to consider delaying their obedience when the parent asks them to do something or tells them, isn't it? Come on. Those of you that are parents here, yeah, you say, hey, won't you just take this and go, yeah, let me just think about it. Think about what? Go do it. And we are on, on prompt on them. Like, no, no, you do it now. We're teaching them the principle of obedience. But then as parents, we, God, when you spoke, uh, let me think about it. We expect our children to do one thing, but we as parents do another thing. Maybe that's why our, parents, our children aren't disobeying, because we're not either. Oops. So my delayed disobedience to God can result in, in my children, if you're a parent here this morning. Also saying, well, I'll consider that one. You've sown. <laughs> you've reaped. So why don't you just sow the right seed? I'm saying, God, immediate obedience is the preferred way. The sixth plague is boils in Ephesians, oh, Ephesians. Exodus 9, verse 8 to 11, talks about this incident where these um, terrible things came because they took ashes from the furnace and, um, and Moses just threw it up in the air. That was told by God in the sight of Pharaoh. And this fine dust all over the land was settled and it became boils breaking out and sores on man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. Oh, my goodness. So for the first time, their disobedience or their reluctance, Pharaoh's reluctance to let the people go, is now taking effect on people, not just around people and in their environment. It's now settling on them. Sores on their hands and their feet and everywhere and their faces. And it's just obviously this oozing stuff, these ugh, things that are taking place. And... Um, Kind of like itching, bleeding sores broke out all over their bodies. And their false worship now resulted in physical disorder upon themselves and not just upon their environment. 
Now, I'm careful to say that sickness upon people is directly a result of sin, because I don't think it's always like that. You know, we've got to be careful, because sometimes we condemn people into that. But sin does have the potential to make us sick from within. Come on. It does. Sin or wrong worship shows, maybe not in physical form, but it reveals itself in these oozing, itching, bleeding sores that we carry in our hearts towards God, towards people, and in life. And so there's stuff in us that because of sin and issues that we have with one another, and even with God, we go around and we actually, we often say this, hurt people, hurt others. So if you're hurt from within, you go around hurting others. Hurt people hurt others. And so there's these sores sometimes in our hearts because of sin, wrong worship, that go around and they hurt others. The seventh plague is hail. This thing is just, it's like, God, can you not stop? But God's saying, I want worship. I want worship. And it's a portion, quite a... um, a big portion here in verses 13 to 35 where a very interesting thing happens here. Not only does the hail come down and it destroys, but we find that the effect of the plagues is no longer determined by nationality, but by faith. So it's not just Egyptians, you're going to be wiped out. Israelites, you're going to be saved. It's not just that. The distinction is made from the heart. Because listen to what it says in verse 19, chapter 9. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. God's saying, you've got an option now. Your livestock is out there. I'm going to destroy them through this hail. But if you want to, you can bring them into shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then, listen to this, whoever, say with me, whoever. Whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into their houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So for the first time, God not only gives them a warning, but he gives them the option to say, listen, be saved from this. It's amazing the grace of God. Amazing the grace of God. So again, there's a warning that goes out to us. Say, come unto me. And there's an invitation like Jesus did. Those of you that are heavy burdened and laden with stress and stuff. Come to me. Come. Come out of the field and come into the place of shelter, which is my presence, which is who I am. I want to speak to you. But again, if we're so involved in, and this is where busyness can become a God. We are just so busy out in the fields. We don't have time to come aside and be with God. God, I've got so much to do. So many things in the hail just pound us. Bah, bah, bah. We come around, oh man, I'm just, I'm destroyed by life. How many of us feel like that often, isn't it? Just hail everywhere. God says, come away. I'm inviting you. Again, we've got to kind of keep on speaking to one another about this, ladies and gentlemen. That you cannot afford just being out there in the, in the field the whole time. In the workplace. In the busyness of stuff. You've got to find time. God has this amazing desire for all to know Him. 
and decide for a lifestyle of worship. 1 Timothy, I've got to read this to you. 1 Timothy 2, Paul is writing this to Timothy and he, and he just says, listen, this is God's heart for all people. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, it says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So it's not a place that we go to, it's a person that we go to. So again, if you're out in the field, all of us are out in the field. We've got to be out in the field. Can't just be at our home the whole time. We've got to be busy with our stuff that God's called us to. And, you, and it's good that you do that. But you've got to come aside to the one who has the knowledge of truth. God says not only for you to be saved, but for all of you to live and to be able to be fed his love and his care. The sad thing, though, is that our heartness and lack of worship can lure those around us into something similar too. Because it says here in verse 34 that in the midst of this hardness that Pharaoh had towards God, he and his servants became like that too. So not only did Pharaoh only carry it, but now his servants got involved in it too. So it's a transference of spirit. It's like what I'm carrying, I'm transferring on those close to me. So what are those close to you receiving from you? Is it a heart of worship? Whatever else. I hope it's nothing else. I hope that it is sincerely this love for God, your children, your, your colleagues, your friends, your relatives, the people around you. They will actually determine what is in your heart and my heart. Because if we ask them, what are you transferring? What is Vesi transferring onto you? They will tell you the truth about what is in my heart. Okay? The eighth plague is locusts. Now, just the hail was good enough. Now the locusts come and it just takes away all fruitfulness. Everything else that was left that wasn't damaged in the fields, the locusts come. And in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 10 and then 13 to 16, you really can go read this on your own time. It says in verse 15, they covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. <laughs> so whatever the hail couldn't get to, the locusts now got to. <laughs> it's like, man, there's nothing left. And it really, for me, it speaks about that disobedience, wrong worship, brings about a complete loss of fruitfulness. Our lives can become a wasteland. It's still a land, still Egypt. But there's nothing there. It's a wasteland. It's no fruitfulness, barrenness. When we disobey God, it has the potential to bring complete calamity upon us. Sin leads to total depravity, total loss, total death. It can change like that. We say, God, we, we repent. God will bring fruitfulness again. But it's your choice. It's my choice. Worship is a choice. It's not just a few songs that we sing. It's a choice. Ninth plague is the one of darkness. Uh, it seems like everything else had now been taken care of. I mean, live, you know, animals and fish and, and fruitfulness upon the field. What else could go wrong? The one thing that has not been taken away is light. So light was still around. People could still see. But now total darkness comes. The Egyptians were shown in that not even their worship of the sun as a god, 
because they were worshipping the sun, could save their situation. I want to say the absence of godly worship can result in the absence of spiritual perspective of godly direction in our lives, where it's just blank. I have no idea what to do. I don't know where to go. I can't picture this. I tried to as I prepared. I thought, gee, how dark can dark be? And darkness is actually just the absence of, of light. It's just the absence of light. Darkness is not something. It's when something else is no longer present that you have darkness. Come on. And so when you and I live in a moment of spiritual darkness, it's not something that we've brought into our lives. It's something that we have resisted in our lives, which is light, which is Jesus. So the more we invite, the more we allow Him, through the Word, for instance, through, through communion with people, fellowship, the more we spend together time with Him and with God and, and, and just hearing from Him, the more light comes into our lives, the more we are able to un understand and comprehend the way we ought to walk. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, the Bible says. But without it, there's nothing. And if you're currently living in a nothingness, my friend, it's not because necessarily you're so bad. It's possibly because you've not invited the good into your life. You're not embracing the light. You're not giving time for the light. Darkness is just the absence of light. Without Christ, our world is dark. And we don't have hope. There's nothing we can do that will ever be right. Second Corinthians, as we hasten, I've got one more plague, as you would know. Then we're done. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to this, please. It says from verse 3, Paul is saying, Ian, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the people who have completely resisted Jesus. Listen to what it says. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just talking about this beautiful reality and truth that light comes through Christ. Without Christ, it's dark. And the devil likes to blind our eyes to see the light. So you and I have the responsibility to pursue the light so that it can change this dark world from within into the rest of the world. The last plague is the one that eventually took them to their knees. God warned them. And it's sad that even after being warned about losing his firstborn, Pharaoh still refused to let God worship, godly worship be expressed. And you read about that on the verses that I've given you. I just want to say God is incredibly committed to seeing total worship be given to him. That even here, it had to go to the extreme level. And by no means am I saying God will take your firstborn if you don't worship him. I'm just saying this is the level of God's commitment to let his people be freed to worship him. And so we have been set free from stuff so that we can worship him. I felt as if I, as I prepared this, I said, God, please help me understand this a little bit better. And I just wanted to give you this verse, or this, this sentence that I felt God 
impressed on my heart. And I felt he said to me, the greatest way to keep something alive on earth is not dependent upon preserving it, but preserving worship. We, we're so focused on trying to preserve something. Preserving our own lives. Preserving our children's lives. Firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn, whatever born. And we're like, God, I've got to just make sure that my kids are okay. I've got to just make sure that I'm okay. Forget about the trees and the rhinoceros and the whatever else is that people get involved in. We are so focused on preserving life. But we are not committed to preserving worship. And I felt God saying that the greatest way to keep life alive is to preserve worship. And that's what the Passover lamb spoke about, and we'll go into next week. Is that we are called to worship our king with all that we have. We are not called to make sure that everybody is safe. That's not our first responsibility. And I know that that's a noble thing to do. How are you doing? People travel. Are you okay? Are you there? Whatever else. But I cannot let that become my worship and my, my focus in life. Self-preservation. Preservation of whoever. God says, I want you to preserve worship. Make sure that that remains part of your life. And so this morning as we prepare our hearts to, to worship our Lord from the table, and, and it's not a physical place, it's just communion. We're going to celebrate Jesus. Because at the end of the day, it is all still about worship. That even right now as we break bread and drink from the cup together, it is all about worship. And this is actually the most important preserving thing that you could ever do. Is to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So I want to ask you, Miles, could you come up please? Just to the to the piano. I want to ask you before you go and break bread, and I want to ask you to choose to worship. You don't have to sing a song. I want to ask you that this morning as you break bread, that you do it with this heart in mind, that God, I'm doing this because I want to worship you. I want to celebrate what you've done for me, Jesus. And my response to you is a thankfulness, but it's also a an attitude of worship today. Not just for this moment. And as you take time during the week, I really want to ask you to do that. Go through all 10 again. Just go read and let God speak to you about where your worship is and where it isn't. But in lieu of that, I want to ask you just as we break bread right now, that it will be a worshipful moment. Say, so Jesus, I give you what you deserve. All that you've done, all that you've done to get me out of stuff is so that I will worship you. And this morning, God, we pray that as we break bread, as we celebrate your goodness, that it will truly be done in worship for you. I pray for that in Jesus' precious name.